I'm Michael Hainsworth. Harvard University's Nathaniel Ropes Professor of Political Economy believes there's a right time for austerity measures and a wrong time. And Alberto Alessina believes that if governments just stuck to a save for a rainy day policy, countries would have no need for austere policy decisions in the first place. The author of the book, Austerity, When It Works and When It Doesn't, shared his insights into belt tightening during a recent C.D. Howe luncheon at the Institute's Toronto headquarters. I began by asking Alessina to define austerity. Well, austerity is a word that has been used in the debate uh, in ways which are sort of very dramatic and very ideological, as if it was the evil or, or, or a necessity. Austerity, very simply, is a policy or a combination of policies needed to reduce budget deficit. And I should add that if government followed uh, appropriate policies, namely allowing deficits when ne necessary and compensating them with surplus when necessary, there would never be a need for austerity because the debt would not accumulate. Now, Harvard has broken down your book into a simple proposition. Austerity achieved through tax increases tends to trigger recessions and worsen a country's debt load, whereas austerity accomplished through government spending cuts has only a limited impact on economic output. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, this is a very fair, uh, you know, if I had to summarize the book in one sentence, that would be the sentence I would, uh, I would, I would use, that's for sure. Well, what's the next sentence? The next sentence is that, uh, is that uh, to reach that conclusion is uh, is less easy than one think because there are many many subtle methodological empirical and data issues that underlie that proposition. So uh, I think that uh, the point of the book is to, to do the best uh, that we can to support that proposition in a variety of ways and also to provide a new pretty vast data set on 16 uh, OECD countries that can be used by others in, for many other applications. Now, is John Maynard Keynes rolling over in his modestly appointed grave at your assessment? I don't think so, in the sense that there is there has been very uh, fairly large literature, and modern literature in fiscal policy, that has suggested that some of Keynes' conclusion needs to be modified or, or extended in a variety of ways. So since Keynes is was a genius, I'm sure that he would understand that in the world where we live now, where government spending is 40, 50, 60% of GDP, is a very different world than the world he was living in when government spending was 15, 20% of GDP. And so certain fiscal uh, relationship may be different in the modern world. So I actually find, I actually think that Keynes will probably turn around his grave when he hears people uh, appealing to him to justify policies that don't make a lot of sense. It, that's a very interesting point as well about how economies evolve, economies change over time. Your data goes back to the 1970s. You crunched all these numbers from back then. An economy from 1975 I can imagine, however, bears very little resemblance to a, an economy in 1995 and 2015. Um, I can imagine that you would believe that what you've written in your book at some point is going to have to be revised again. Well, connected to the previous question, certainly the uh, when Keynes was writing in the 1920s, uh, 
30s were certainly very very different than 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 even the 1970s but uh, so but yes uh, economies uh, evolve uh, and the fact that are you know there are three different uh, periods in which many austerity measures were introduced one was in the 80s and early 90s when the interest rate in the world were very high so that was very expensive so some country that ever had accumulated debt for no reason they find all the sudden that it was extremely expensive to service the debt a second occurred when many european countries had to converge to the european union uh, monetary union and the third of course occurred after the financial crisis now uh, economies after the financial crisis, they do look different in some way from the economies in the 70s and 80s, mostly because interest rates are much, much lower. Um, and uh, the financial markets have changed a lot. And government spending has actually gone up a lot relative to the late 70s. So, so yes, uh, economies do change. What we find in the book is that as far as the main result of the book regarding tax spending, um, as we were saying before, they do apply to this different uh, in for to the different time period. So the basic proposition applies, even though you know the the sub proposition and the caveat may be different. I suppose the key to settling the austerity debate is determining just how much of a fiscal multiplier spending and tax cuts are. Because there really isn't a consensus. We, we haven't settled the austerity debate because I don't think anybody can agree on what those fiscal multipliers are, or at least to the degree at which they have an effect that, on an economy. That's a very good way of asking the question. Um, let me say that, in my view, a non-ideological reader of the literature in fiscal policy, leaving aside my book, our book for a second, would agree that uh, spending multipliers are lower than tax multiplier, that spending multiplier are probably significantly less than one, and tax multiplier are much, much larger than one. This is, in my opinion, is a, a um, fair reading of the literature. Going back to the book, I think the book, in addition to having results which are consistent with this uh, statement about multipliers, also does as some methodological uh, progress or methodological changes that are particularly necessary when you talk about uh, austerity as opposed to fiscal policy in a, in a normal period. So then let's talk about the methodology in which you employed. As you mentioned, you looked at 16 OECD countries. You went back as far as the 1970s. Tell me about that process. Okay, so there are two, there are two key issues here. One which is well known, which is when you want to study austerity, you have what the economists call reverse causality issue, or namely, if you see a deficit going down because uh, uh, because an economy is growing a lot, um, and if an economy grows, tax revenues go up and spending need goes down, you don't want to conclude that reducing deficit causes growth. It is growth that causing causes reducing deficit. So you need to deal with that. And the way we do it, we follow an approach that becomes reasonably common in, uh, in the literature, which is the so-called narrative approach, which is very simply is to look at when uh, governments decided to do 
um, tax increases or spending cuts, not because of the cycle, but because they really wanted to reduce deficit. Incidentally, that leads us to, to somewhat uh, leave out policies of tax increases and spending cuts when they occur during boom, because there is the, the possibility that they were doing it for cyclical reason, a point that we may come back to that later. So the first point is to ex look at using the narrative method where, to isolate uh, exogenous changes in taxes and spending dictated only by austerity measures. The second, and, and that has been, and we followed uh, an approach uh, also used by other. The innovation here is that typically uh, austerity big austerity plans are indeed plans that is a government announces in the next two or three years we'll do this and that and the other they're not one shot in general they're not one shot move their plan announced uh, for several years so that's important because expectation matter for consumers and investors so we construct a data set based on the explicit recognition of the nature and the evolution of these plans and we estimate policies taking into account the announcement for the future the changes in the announcement for the future and uh, uh, and that leads to a what i would we think a test of austerity which is more appropriate because you need to take into account these multi-year plans and the third is that the third difficulty is, is that, of course, austerity plans are often a policy package accompanied not only by fiscal measure, perhaps structural reform, what monetary policy does is important, what the change rate does is important, so we try to isolate uh, these various uh, aspects together. So let's get to the crux of the matter here. As the title of the book is Austerity, When It Works and When It Doesn't, let's start with when it works the title is slightly mis misleading because when you may you may think about uh when in in a time dimension but in fact the message of the the book that we were saying before is it works when you do it by cutting spending so when austerity works the answer is austerity works when most of the adjustment is on the spending side and not on the tax side and this result holds a pretty general. So even in the recent uh, post financial crisis austerity, that result holds. Uh, so, um, so 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 that's the answer. When austerity works, when you do it uh, on the ta on the tax side, and it may work even better when other conditions are are favorable. For example, it may be debatable whether. The condition for the post financial crisis austerity were particularly favorable or not but the basic result that austerity works when you cut spending holds as i understand it the premise is when we see spending cuts that telegraphs to the investment community two things one this is a government that is attempting to be responsible and two maybe tax cuts are coming next and so it's the spending cuts that boost investor confidence and that opens their wallets. They open their wallets. That's money that gets invested into the economy. That's what drives the economy forward. Is that an accurate assessment? That's completely correct. In fact, that's exactly what we find. Uh, and this is consistent with other uh, 
previous work by both by us and by others, namely that is exactly right, that the component of aggregate demand, the private aggregate demand that sort of compensate for the cut in government spending is precisely its private investment. And the, the two mechanisms which I think are uh, relevant in here are precisely what you said. One is that uh, investors feel like, okay, more taxes are not coming tomorrow, perhaps even less. So they increase their confidence about future expectation. And in fact, we do find that the, uh, that the expectation of investor uh, improve after uh, an announcement or the implementation of a spending-based um, plan and private investment pick up pretty soon after the beginning of a plan and that compensate for the cut in spending. So, so uh, that's exactly correct. As opposed to a plan that is based on taxes, you may say, well, even a government that reduces deficit a lot with taxes is quote-unquote responsible. On the other hand, if you don't block the automatic spending growth of various programs, then taxes will have to keep increasing. And investors say, okay, they reduce deficit today, that's fine, but tomorrow taxes will have to go up again because we didn't do anything on the spending side and therefore I better not invest because I expect more taxes tomorrow. So the argument is that investor confidence is that lever that gets pulled, it drives the economy. What do you make of Paul Krugman calling uh, that idea the confidence fairy? Uh, well, you know, Paul Krugman was a, uh, was a fantastic economist. He turned into a journalist with very strong um, political and ideological views. And so he used every possible argument to make anybody suggesting that austerity was necessary and may work as an evil person. And I think that um, as an economist, he would uh, have to agree, as an economist and not as a journalist, he would have to agree that uh, future expectations are important. And uh, when future expectations become optimistic, which we call an increase in confidence, uh, are, uh, can be quite helpful. So it is not a fairy tale uh, because the data suggests that it's not. Having said that, it is uh, something that is sort of difficult to measure. So one has to be careful not to come up with stories which are based only on confidence and do making a, uh, you know too much of a big deal out of it. But to say that it's a fairy tale is just plain wrong. From my understanding, the premise is that if you cut spending by 1% of GDP, that has an effect of slowing the economy by 0.3% initially, but again, back to the premise that the investor confidence will make up for that 0.3% decline and then contribute to growing the economy. What's the corollary for tax increases? If you increase taxes, what, what do the numbers bear out on those ratios? Let me first say that this number that you say, 0.3.4, is the average of uh, many, many adjustment plans in many countries. So that's an average. So some of them are even less costly, and some of them, some of them can be labeled uh, expansionary austerity, namely that they've been a uh, 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 followed by actually an increase rather than a reduction other are a bit more costly. For the tax case, again, the average 
uh, are uh, the model implies an average of a recession of two or three percent of GDP for several years, two or three years, after which it's very difficult to make forecasts. But certainly, a, a large recession of two or three percent of GDP for the same level of adjustment that on the spending side would give you a, a, a small recession. Incidentally, again, our numbers are calculated in a different way because we are thinking about plans, expectations. Is that you can't quite compare to the multiplier that are normally estimated in the quote unquote traditional literature, but uh, they are definitely in the same ballpark, namely spending multiplier much less than one and tax multiplier much bigger than one. So this comes back to the second half of the title of the book, uh, When Austerity Does and When Austerity Does Not Work. And I guess this just comes back to your point that it's not about a time frame issue. It's about a, um, a deployment issue. And that when austerity, austerity does not work is when we're talking about tax increases as a means of bringing more revenue in the door for a government. That's completely correct. That is actually that you are absolutely correct. There is, although there is, um, to some extent, there is a discussion about the when, in a sense, that in recent years in particular, there's been a big discussion about whether the spending and tax multipliers, particularly the spending multiplier, are bigger during recessions or during booms. Namely, if I cut spending during a recession, are the multiplier much bigger than if I cut spending during the boom? And the intuition would seem to be say, well, you know, probably seem to be the case. If, if the economy is already in a recession and you cut spending, you know, just... And there are some results uh, by economists suggesting that uh, that is indeed the case, which would suggest that austerity, being that on the tax side and on the spending side, is much less costly if you do it when you are in a boom, not when you are in a recession. However, there are subtle issues because it is complicated and there are other results suggesting that indeed it's not quite so obvious that the spending multiplier are so much bigger during recession than during boom for technical reasons which I don't want to go into. But what we find in the book is uh, pretty much consistent with this literature, namely that if if we if you follow certain statistical techniques, we do find that uh, recession or uh, austerity is more costly during recession. If you find other econometric technique, that's not quite so obvious, then the difference may not be so big. But the important point is that regardless of this discussion, the difference between spending-based and tax-based austerity remains. So we may disagree about whether both of them are slightly more costly or slightly less costly during the recession of booms, but the difference between the two uh, remains in both cases. This isn't the first time you've expressed this view about austerity. You, you were talking about these theories and these ideas at the height of the financial crisis. Do you get a sense that anyone has taken your advice to heart? Well, the Irish government, when they, uh, after the financial crisis, they proposed 
the uh, the, their austerity plan, which was particularly difficult for Ireland because when they threw, they went through a huge banking crisis and they had a deficit uh, over GDP of 30% for a year because they had to save all the banks. When they announced their, spend, their plan based purely on spending cuts, they made a reference to this literature that suggested that that, would, that was the best way to do it. The UK government more or less explicitly made that same comment when Cameron did his, um, uh, this, uh, did his uh, austerity plan. So I think that the, the idea that spending cuts are much less costly than tax increases, I think is that at this point, I dare say, is a pretty, at least for OECD countries where the size of government is quite large. I think this idea, is, I would say, is pretty well accepted in the profession. The debate, which is not really something that the book goes into, is when is the right time to do, was austerity started too soon? Um, when is a good time to do austerity or not? Uh, when do we really need it or not? It's more, of a, it's more of a question of when to do austerity. Is austerity needed today or tomorrow? But the, the difference between tax and spending, I think uh, there is so much evidence now that I think is, I think a non-ideological economist would have to agree with that conclusion. Ideology, you touched on this a, a little bit earlier, is something that we most certainly need to discuss. Your point being, if I understood it correctly, was that when a politician comes into power, cutting spending doesn't necessarily have to happen to reduce debt. It depends on the, the, the point in the economic cycle at which you would want to employ that measure. Just because you may be of a certain uh, political affiliation or have a certain ideology, uh, cut, 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 cut doesn't necessarily work all the time. Well, sure, there are, there are, there are three reasons why a government may, may cut spending. One is for cyclical reason say the economy, which does not happen very often because normally it's monetary policy that deals with the cycle. But you may say the economy is in a boom, inflation is growing, we better cut something and I cut government spending for cyclical reason. That's not considered in the book. In fact, it's excluded from the book as something which has nothing to do with austerity. The second reason is that I want to cut government spending because I think that the size of government is too big and I believe that uh, I want to reduce the size of government. Uh, but then um, maybe the deficit is zero, but I, I think the government is too big and I want to cut spending by 5% and maybe cutting taxes by 5% and the deficit remains zero or create a deficit by cutting spending. That is the perfectly reasonable thing to do. Of course, it's nothing to do with austerity, and it's not in the book. Uh, our book is, is only about policies of cutting spending in order to reduce the deficit. Having said that, uh, you know, ideology may come into place as well, because some government may feel that regardless of what are the effects on on the economy in terms of short-run recession. Uh, I don't want to cut spending because I think it's a non-starter. I want to raise taxes even at the cost of having a recession. 
uh, and but that's a, that's a policy choice that one can make. Well, austerity is a dirty word in many politicians' minds. Um, reviewing the policies since the 70s, you concluded austerity measures aren't necessarily the death of a political party or a politician, though. Yes, this is actually a result that keeps coming up, in, not only in the book, but also in previous research by us and by others. There is this view, uh, commonly held view, that the moment a government reduces a deficit or cut spend, uh, by cutting spending or raises taxes, is finished. Now, the evidence is not there, really. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, again, it's a complicated issue to study because you may say, well, a government that has, say, cut spending, it gets reelected. You may say, well, it got reelected despite having cut spending for a million of other reasons. So, it, it, again, it's a complicated issue. Again, based on the work on the book, on some additional work that we are doing now and the work of others, at the very least, you can conclude that it is not the case that a government that does, uh, that reduces deficit is automatically thrown out of office. I mean, a, an example was in Canada in the 90s, for example, that a series of government were actually elected on a platform of austerity they implemented it and they were re-elected. And there are many other um, examples. In the recent work, we find that, in fact, tax-based austerity seemed to be more costly at the polls, particularly for right-wing government. Uh, and spending-based austerity is, on average, much less costly at the poll, but it is more costly for uh, left-wing government. The ideology being that if I am on the right wing, I am all about cutting taxes. And if I elect a right wing government who increases taxes, well, I get did. that bum out. I, exactly. But on the other hand, if I am, uh, if I am a left wing government uh, and I want to do austerity and I do it on the spending side, I'm punished. If I do on the tax side, much less so. But on average, com putting together left and right, the um, is, it is slightly, on average, it's slightly more costly to do taxes than spending, and you need to go into this various ideological distinction. But the idea that any government that does anything on the taxes or spending always loses is just uh, a way oversimplification of reality. So if we bring it back to the 1930s and Keynes. It sounds like we haven't really changed one key premise, which is when times are good, that's the time to save for the rainy day. And when we have that rainy day, that's when we open the wallet. Of course, that's exactly what we should do. Uh, and the, the government that do that, they never have to follow austerity because uh, when uh, the rainy days come, they have the surplus that they have accumulated. One of the basic principles of fiscal policy is that you, know, you, re you accumulate debt during recession and then you pay it back during booms. Uh, now, the problem is that most governments don't do that. They are very happy to follow the prescription of accumulating deficit during recession, which is great, but then they don't follow up with uh, paying back uh, when they have surpluses. So that's the, the big pro the first problem. The second problem is, of course, that there are sh major shocks, like leaving aside wars, like national calamities or the financial crisis that may go above and beyond the normal cycle. But there too, the countries that suffered the most in Europe from the financial crisis 
in terms of fiscal policy. We are countries that had accumulated large debt before the financial crisis for no reason. So when the financial crisis hit, they had all this debt that was that was problematic. In some cases, obvious debt like Greece, Italy, Portugal, and in other cases, the debt was not so high, like in Spain or Ireland, but it was somehow hidden by the housing real estate boom that generated a lot of short-run tax revenues, but the fiscal problems were there. So, um, the so the combination of having accumulated debt for no good reason, plus a negative shock, can make a disaster like Greece. So then on the topic of rainy days, mm. what is the global economic forecast for 2020? Uh, I, I'm... As Mark Twain said, it's very difficult to make forecasts, especially for the future. And, uh, and I completely agree with him. So um, I have, uh, I'm not in the business of making forecasts. Uh, the only thing I can say about forecasts is that um, uh, big event, big crisis, big out of the ordinary situation are rare my definition. So probably the best forecast is something which is not too extreme one way one way or, or the other, which I think is pretty much my forecast for the world economy. I have no idea about whether this virus has any what I'm not an expert, I really have no opinion on, on, on that. But assuming that that virus doesn't create a catastrophe as I don't think it will. But again, I'm not an expert, I would expect something reasonably peaceful. And on the topic of forecasts, Twain also said, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. <laughs> yes. Alberto Alessina is the Nathaniel Ropes Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University. The C.D. Howe Institute's Debt Watch continues. March 5th, the Toronto headquarters will host a roundtable with Adam Hardy of Moody's Canada, Paul LeBain of DBRS, and S&P Global's Stephen Ogilvie. Later in the month, the CEO of the Toronto Transit Commission. Rick Leary will join us March 12th to discuss the future of one of the least subsidized transit systems in North America, about what it takes to keep people moving while relying less on government support, and more on the ticket wicket. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.